0: So, survey, quick survey. How many of you do not know who Lou Gehrig is? I'm just raise your hands. if you're. I did an informal survey this week. I have discovered that people under the age of 30, they're like, Lou who? I'm like, uh, Lou Gehrig, one of the greatest ever? Now, in fairness, he hasn't played baseball in about 100 years, okay? So, I'm not even a big baseball fan, but I know enough to know about Lou Gehrig. So, he played in the 20s and 30s, and he was known as one of the best then, but now he is considered to be one of the greatest of all times. And the address that you just saw came from July the 4th, 1939. He was 35 years old. They had Lou Gehrig Day at Yankee Stadium. He spoke to a packed house and you see all the trophies and stuff like the people were giving him gifts. But here's the thing, two weeks before he had just been diagnosed with a disease called ALS. We commonly know this as Lou Gehrig's disease, and it had started to not just affect the way he was playing baseball, but it was beginning to threaten his life. Now, he was 35 years old when he gave that speech. He died two years later at the very young age of 37. But in his farewell speech, these are some of his famous last words. He said, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break I got, yet today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. He died at a tragically young age, but he seemed to understand the value, the importance of making the most of every opportunity, every moment that he had left. Now, today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats. And if you need one, please feel free to take that as our gift to you, but in Acts chapter 20, we're going to see the apostle Paul. We've been studying his life and we're going to see that he's nearing the end of his life. He seemed to know that. He's going to give a famous farewell speech um, that's been recorded for us. But what we've seen for the last few weeks from Acts 16, 17, 18, 19, and now 20, Paul has been on this mission of advancing the message of the gospel and the movement of the church all throughout the Roman empire. But in Acts 20, something shifts. He is bent on getting to the sacred Jewish city of Jerusalem. That's the one place. And everybody's like, Paul, we don't think this is a good idea. And he's like, nope, this is what I have to do. And just like Lou Gehrig, you get the sense that Paul knows his time on earth is short, but he was committed to making the most of every opportunity He had. And we're going to get into his farewell speech in just a moment. But before we do, there's a story at the beginning of Acts 20 that I want to hit really quick because I think it sets up a really important theme for where we're going to go with the rest of the day. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, we learn that Paul lands in the city of Troas. And then we read this in verse 7 On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Until, everybody say it with me, midnight. He went for hours. Some of you get squirmy. If I get like up to 1140, you're like, we got to get out of here for lunch. Till midnight. Can you imagine? Our 10-year-old daughter often leans over to me or my wife and she's like, we've sang a lot of songs. It's probably time to be done now. Or is somebody going to tell dad he's going a little long, right? I know you guys get squirmy when we go too long, but Paul's going till midnight. And so here's the rest of the story. While he's preaching till midnight, I love this. Luke says, the writer of Acts says, and while Paul was talking on and on, there's a young man that was sitting in the door. His name is Eutychus. He fell asleep. He fell three stories to the, to the ground and died. Paul rushed down laid himself over top of him, brought him back to life and said, he's fine. And then here's what we read in verse 11. Then he went upstairs and broke bread. And after talking until daylight, he left. It was like halftime. Now we're gonna continue through the rest of the night. And verse 12 should say, and everybody went home and took a nap. But it doesn't, it says they all went home and they were greatly comforted. Now, I don't know what is the greater miracle that Paul brought this young boy back to life or that people were willing to hear him preach all the way through the night till daybreak. But here's the part of the story that I want us to see. We can chuckle at the details of people falling asleep in church. That never happens. (laughs) Yes, it does. You should see my vantage point. It's kind of fun. People fall asleep, that's okay. But here's the bigger picture. I think this is a picture that Paul loved the church And the people of the church loved Paul. He loved them so much. He knew this is the last time I'm going to get to see you. I want to give you everything I have. And the people of the church returned that love by hanging on his every word to hear what he had to say. So I want you to keep that in mind. Paul loved the church and the church loved Paul. Now look at verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. Verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, last week in Acts 19, we talked about how Paul traveled to all these cities. And look, find Ephesus on here. This is where Paul was in Acts 19, Ephesus in the region of of Asia. And we learned that Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus was so powerful that everyone in the surrounding area knew who Jesus was because of his work in Ephesus. But now we learn on his way to Jerusalem, he skips Ephesus and lands in Miletus, 40 miles to the south. You'll see it there, 40 miles to the south. And then he calls the Ephesian elders to come and meet him. And I think it's worth asking the question, why? Why wouldn't he just stop at this church? He loved this church. Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First, we already know he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. We just read that detail. Also, somebody in our small group pointed out that when he was in Ephesus, a riot broke out and it says they were literally trying to kill him. And he might've thought, I've done that once, bucket list item. I don't need to do that again. But I think as a pastor, personally, I think after being in Ephesus for three years, I think he loved the church there. I wonder if he loved the church there so much. He knew, I can't make a quick trip there. Like there's so many people that I will want to see. I, I can't, I've got to get to Jerusalem. So I've got to bypass it. I'm going to go to my latest. But he does the next best thing. He invites the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him. And here's what I love. They willingly made the 40 mile journey to meet with their friend Paul. Why? Because they loved him. And they wanted to see whatever it was he had to say. And thankfully for us, Luke one of Paul's traveling companions and the author of the book of Acts captured his words to these Ephesian elders for us. But here's something really interesting about what we're getting ready to read together. It's the only extended speech in the entire book of Acts that Paul makes to a group of believers, people that are following Jesus. Everywhere else he's speaking, it's to non-believers, non-Christians. He's compelling them to, to come and know Jesus. Now he's speaking to people like me and you that know and love and follow Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read Paul's entire speech to you, and then we're going to pull it apart and make some applications. So we're going to jump in at verse 18. Luke says, When they arrived, Paul said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying of the good, to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This is the last time we're gonna get to see each other. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Verse 27. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Remember that word sanctified. It means being made holy. We'll talk about it in a minute. Now, Paul covers a lot of ground in in those 14 verses. And I wanna encourage you to go back and read it for yourself at some point this week. There is so much good stuff in this passage. But if you had to pick out one verse that I think everything is built around, I think it's verse 24. It says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In essence, Paul is urging his friends from Ephesus to say, he's saying, follow my example and be faithful to do what Jesus has called you to. Be faithful to do what Jesus has called you to. Paul says, you know, that's how I've lived my life. And, and think about the study that we've done on Paul's life. He was laser focused on helping people find their way back to God through faith in Jesus. I mean, everywhere he went, that's all he talked about. And here at Genesis, we believe that it's, this is the same mission that God has given every single one of us that follow Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're a custom home builder or a stay-at-home mom. A teacher or a student, if you are young or old, male or female, if you follow Jesus, he has called and equipped you with his Holy Spirit to live on mission so that other people can see Jesus in your life. And so just like Paul, that means that we leverage our gifts and our talents and our abilities, our resources and our time to show people around us who Jesus is and what he is like and how to walk in step with him, Paul was faithful to do what Jesus had told him to do. And now we're learning that Paul is faithful to share the truth. He mentions this twice in verses 20 and 27. He says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Verse 27, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. After Paul started following Jesus, he devoted his entire life to to living in the truth of God for himself and proclaiming the truth of God to the people around him. Now, I want you to hear what Jesus has to say about the power of truth in our lives. John 8 says this, Jesus, Jesus, these are his words. If you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We all need to be set free From lots of things in our life. And Jesus says, the way you are set free is by the truth of my words. Now, before following Jesus, Paul thought he had the truth figured out. He judged everyone by his own standard. He fooled himself into thinking he could try hard enough to be good enough to stand before a holy God and say, good job, you're in. And then one day he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul realized, I have been living a lie. I am dead in my sins. He put his faith in Jesus and everything changed. And now in Acts 20, he is reminding the Ephesian elders, what has been true for me should be true for you. Be faithful to share the truth in your everyday lives. And here's the truth. This is not a popular view in our world, but here's the truth of our situation me and you, all of us, we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. We will stand before a holy God with nothing to show, but through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. Our relationship with God is restored. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into God's family. That's the message of truth that Paul lived out. That's the message of truth that we get to live out. And and I know that can seem a little overwhelming, but here's the good news about that. That doesn't mean that you're on the hook for saving the entire world. That's Jesus's job. And it doesn't mean that it's all you ever have to talk about when you're with your family and friends. And it certainly doesn't mean that you get to threaten people with cringy phrases like turn or burn. That's not what this looks like. We share our lives the way that Paul shared his life. Pastor J.D. Greer makes, I think this is a really good observation. When we share our faith with people, it is easy for us to live in one of two, um, what are these called? Yeah, you know what these are called, right? On one end of the spectrum or the other. Oh, I'm so human. Apathy or anger. Apathy or anger. It's easy to be apathetic and be like, I don't even know why we bother. Like, you're not listening, you don't care. Or you could just be angry. Like, I see the way that you live. I don't even know that I want God to forgive you. Apathy or anger. But I think a better option is authenticity. Because when we share the truth of Jesus authentically, it takes the focus off of us and it puts the focus on Jesus and what he has done for us. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. Now, whenever you hear somebody talk about how humble they are, you're like, nice humble brag, right? It seems like Paul's flexing and tooting his horn, but he's not. The word that is used here for humility was a very common Greek word, and it's often translated as weakness, but it's meant to be an insult because it means to be low, to be defeated, or to be weak. But here's what's interesting. It's a word that's used over 200 times throughout scripture. And when it's used, it's usually used as a virtue, meaning that it's something that we strive for. Now that makes zero sense apart from Jesus but we talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the greatest lessons that Paul learned from Jesus, he recorded for us in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12:9 Paul said this, or I'm sorry, Jesus said this to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Jesus said, Paul, when you admit that you're weak, the pow- my power is unlocked in your life. We are all weak but God wants his power to live in us. Listen to how the late Tim Keller explains this. He says, a humble and weak person will show a crucified savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled together expert. Because that's how it happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together, but by admitting we were sinners. And listen to this, calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. That's how we're saved through what Jesus has done for us. So here's my question. What would it look like for us? We ask this question every week. What would it look like for us to live our lives and to share Jesus, not apathetic, not in anger, but in authenticity? Now, throughout this series, through Acts, we've developed a really simple tool. We call it my everyday prayer. We've put it at the bottom of our reading plans and the bookmarks. We've prayed through it together. And and we even put a a space in there as a reminder. We need to pray for people by name, but we don't just pray for them. We model what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I really want to challenge you. Are you praying for people by name? Are you using your life to model what it looks like to follow Jesus so people will follow him and, and come and know him as well? So Paul, in this farewell speech, he says, he uses his life as an example And he says, do what Jesus has called you to do. Show others the truth. But then his final words seem to be directed to them personally. Look at what he says in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul says, you need to pay close attention to the way that you're living your life because other people are watching you. Or maybe a really simple way to remember this is let's just use Paul's words. Watch your life because people are watching they're paying attention to how you live. Paul is calling his friends here in Ephesus to live lives of personal holiness. And that sounds a little overwhelming, doesn't it? Personal holiness, what does that mean? Well, the goal of personal holiness is not to try hard to be the best version of you. And personal holiness is not pretending that you have it all together. No one likes that person. No one enjoys being around that person. Personal holiness is allowing the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of you, to help root out and weed out all of our weaknesses and sins so that we can become like Jesus, so we can look like and live like and act like and love like and respond like Jesus. Scripture calls this the process of sanctification, the process of being made holy by the Holy One Himself. Now, we got a small glimpse of this last week in Acts 19. We learned that Paul's ministry in Ephesus was so powerful. His three-year ministry there was so powerful that at one point in time, believers, followers of Jesus confessed their sins publicly. And then they brought all these scrolls of sorcery and they began to burn them worth millions of dollars. And the challenge last week was, what what scrolls do you need to burn? Now, I I went home last week and I had a young man from our church family text me and say, hey, thank you for that challenge. I burned a scroll when I got home. And I was like, great job. Keep going. I had another friend reach out to me and say, hey, thanks for that challenge. I'm trying to figure out which scroll to burn. And I said, you burn them all. You don't hold on. Like, we don't hold on to any of them. We all have these scrolls that we need to burn. And here's why this matters. Our purity, our purity matters to Jesus. He's the Holy One who has sent His Holy Spirit to live inside of us to get rid of the sin in our life so that we can become more like Christ. It's a battle that we're in all the time, but the Holy Spirit works in us. Listen to what Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, an elder in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 4.16, he said, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The way that we live out our faith in Jesus is a reflection of how we view Jesus as not just our king, but the eternal king of kings. And it has a powerful impact on the people around us. So the way we talk, the things we watch, the things that we listen to, they all matter. The way we use our bodies, the way we view our bodies, The way we view sexuality, the way we approach sex, the way we parent, the way that we respond to our parents, it all matters to Jesus because he's come to redeem it, all of it. He's come to make it all new so that he can use it in our lives. He can use our weaknesses to be magnified in our lives so other people can find him. And I'm not just talking at you, I'm talking to myself. My family is sitting right over here and they could be like, oh, you got a lot of work to do. I got a a lot of work to do. We all have a lot of work to do, but it's the Holy Spirit in us. It's not us doing it on, on our own. Then look at what he says in verse 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with a lot of money. That's not what it says. He bought the church through his blood. I know that even after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Paul has challenged them to watch their lives closely. And now he is saying, you have got to protect the church. You have to protect the church the church. I read ahead a few weeks ago into this section, and I was fascinated by this because Paul is looking at his friends at this church that he loves, and he says, savage wolves from out there are going to come, and they're going to rip you apart if you're not ready. We live in a world. We are sheep among wolves. There are powerful spiritual forces out in the world that want to come and just tear the church apart, but Paul says it's not just out there. It's in here. There could be people within that will want to teach and promote false doctrine, you have got to protect the church. Look at what he says, verse 31, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is the second time Paul refers to shedding tears with his friends in Ephesus. Now, there's one caveat to this whole passage, and I don't know if you've caught onto it yet, but if you're like, if you always like to look for loopholes, you could have looked at this and said, well, he's talking to elders in the church in Ephesus. And I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I'm not on staff. I'm just a sheep in the flock. I'm here to eat and be protected. Can I just say I love serving as a pastor and loving and, and serving, getting to serve here at Genesis? You guys have no idea how God has used this church family to shape my view of the church, and to love and bless our families. I love what I get to do. Now, does that mean it's always easy? No. There are plenty of sleepless nights. There are lots of things that wear me out. There's lots of people that could do this better than me. I'm not going to lie to you. My, My biblical responsibility is to feed and lead and protect our church family, and I get to do that alongside an amazing team of staff members and some of the most humble elders I have ever met in my entire life. I mean, these men are incredible in their humility and their love for you. And it's a responsibility that we all take very personally. So if you're looking for a loophole, you can say, oh, that's to those guys. But here's my question. Of all of Paul's words here in Acts 20, which ones are you willing to ignore? When you think about what Jesus has done for you, what he's given and sacrificed is it so unreasonable unreasonable, to live and to do what he's called you to do? Is it unreasonable to live out the truth for him? Is it unreasonable to, to watch your life and to protect the church? I want you to hear what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, the people that made up the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter two, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul says, you have been saved by the work of God, not by anything that you did. A few weeks ago, um, our daughter didn't want to eat what we had for dinner again. And I said, it's this or nothing. And I said, and if, if I hear that you're hungry later... You're going to lose a privilege tomorrow. And she stuck to her guns. She went all night and didn't eat anything. And it was time for her to brush her teeth. She's brushing her teeth. And I said, sweetheart, are you hungry? She said, I ain't answering your question. (laughs) I said, I'm asking. She said, I'm not going to answer you. I said, you're not going to be in trouble. Are you hungry? And she's like, yes, I'm hungry. Brushing her teeth. And I said, okay, do you know what grace is? I was shocked. She said, yeah, it's receiving something that you don't deserve. I was like, okay, I'm going to show you some grace. I don't want you to go to bed hungry. Why don't you go downstairs and get a cheese stick and then we'll get in bed? And she said, well, it's gonna taste like mint because I'm brushing my teeth. <laughs> God's grace and our response. There it is. Out of the mouth of a 10-year-old. A free gift. And we're like, thanks, but could you add a little something to it, right? Could you told me before I brushed my teeth, you have been saved by grace through faith. You and I have nothing to bring to God apart from Christ, zero. But through Christ, Verse 10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that every single one of you are God's handiwork? Another translation says masterpiece, poema. You're a beautiful poem. God has Given you gifts and talents and abilities that he wants you to use to advance the gospel and to build up his church. And we get to do this together. And I don't tell you that to inspire you or to make you feel good. I tell you that because it's true. It's what God's word tells us to do. And so when you hear us talk about finding a place to serve, there are major needs that we have, but God's created you in a unique way to serve and to build up his church. This is how the church has worked for generations. And I want to encourage you, it's having a generational impact in our church family right now. A few weeks ago, a really good friend of mine sent me a, a video message in the middle of the day for no reason. And he said, I, just, I had to share this with you. He said, my wife and kids are at my parent, were at my parents' house the other day um, and they were with a neighbor who's not a follower of Jesus and my uncle. And they're all hanging out And his parents had come to our 20-year celebration. And so the the subject of church had just kind of naturally come up in the conversation. And they were talking. And as they're talking about churches, believers and non-believers alike, their son's in the room and he's listening. And this young man didn't raise his hand and say, I've got something to say. He just jumps into this very adult conversation. And he says, I really love Genesis because it's a church where everyone loves me and accepts me. It's a family and I don't just show up, I get to participate. And then he said this, I don't have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way, dress a certain way to be accepted. They love me for who I am. This is a young man inserting himself into an adult conversation, but here's the most fascinating thing about it. He's 10 years old. And his dad said, we talk a lot about what faith in Jesus looks like, but we don't really talk about like the function of the church. We didn't know that he could grasp that yet. So those are his own Words. He came to that conclusion on his own. And here's what's really cool about that. He is learning from his parents how to follow Jesus and make disciples. And he is seeing his parents use their gifts and talents and abilities and resources to advance the gospel and to build up the church. They're part of groups and they serve and all those things. He's got amazing Gen Kids workers that know him by name, that pour into him, that love him, that teach him. And then there's all the rest of us, some of us that he knows and some of us that he doesn't, but he sees us showing up on Sundays to worship Jesus as the head of the church and the eternal King of Kings. And his conclusion is the same as Paul's. I love the church because I know the church loves me. Now that's one story of life change happening right now. That's just one. But I want you to imagine what could happen if we started to view the church differently? If we, what if we viewed the church the way Paul viewed the church? What if we stopped looking at the church like one of our favorite stores where we get to walk in and we're looking for a sale, we're looking for things that we're like, and we're very brand loyal here, and oh, I'm too good to shop there, I'm gonna go here. And so we just take what we want and we leave and we feel good, and if we don't like it, we don't have to come back, we can go to another store. What if we stop viewing the church like that and we're like, the church is the body of Christ and I have a role to play. And I get to be with people that I don't know, but they love me and I love them and we're gonna serve Jesus together. What if we quit looking at the church like the gas station where we stop in for a fill up whenever we need something and we might grab something, a snack on the way out the door. What if we viewed the church as an overflow of everything else that's happening during the week so that when we're together, we're celebrating or we're coming over here to pray and say, I've got life is crippling. Will someone pray with me? Or I've got something to celebrate. Would you pray with me? The church is not a time and a place on a Sunday morning. The church is a body of believers in Ephesus, in Troas, in Noblesville, in Carmel, all over the world, united around the name of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we launched over 40 groups between our two campuses. We have more people connected in groups than ever before at Genesis Church, which is exciting, but we don't just see groups as groups of people that meet together, our vision for groups is that they are small churches inside of the big church. So if we ever have to go through a pandemic again, we're like, oh, no, we, we can't meet on Sunday. Okay, we're just going to keep going. Small churches inside of a larger church where we read scripture and we pray and we share life and we invite people in because that's the way the church is meant to function. That's how the church has advanced for 2,000 years. That's what our kids and grandkids need to see the church doing being the body of Christ and forgetting about the name on the outside and focusing on the name that we all center around, the name of Jesus. I want you to hear how much these Ephesian elders loved Paul. Acts 20, 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. They all wept and they embraced him and they kissed him. They were grieved by his statement, this will be the last time we'll ever see each other face to face. Paul loved the church and he knew the church loved him. The church is such an incredible gift for us. And if you're bored with the church, I don't think we can blame Jesus. We have got to engage with the church. The Holy Spirit moves within the church. The church gets to serve and and, and reflect the love of God collectively to the world around us. And so I wanna invite you to lean into the church. We're not trying to post a number somewhere that we feel good about. We want to advance the kingdom of God, hopefully launch other campuses and help plant churches so that people everywhere can hear about Jesus. And we need to hand off a version of the church that our kids and grandkids that will withstand no matter what the world throws at it. So if you're part of the Genesis Church family, I love you. And I know that you love me, but we have got to partner together to build the church up. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to talk with you but we don't just do what we do to check a box and to move on. We are here for the glory of Jesus. And in a moment, we're gonna sing a song that speaks of the narrative of scripture that we see play out of what Jesus has done for us, the power, his power revealed in the church. But before we pray and before we do that, I just wanna challenge you. How are you using your gifts and your talents and abilities to advance the gospel and build up the church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us that even while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus, your son, to die in our place to rescue us from the penalty of death that we deserve. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for buying the church with your blood, for giving us forgiveness and salvation, for filling us with the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. Would you help us to understand who you are as our king, who we are as the body of Christ, And would you use us to make your name great everywhere that we go? Would you you begin a revival? We would love to be a part of it, but let it be all about you. Would you bring people to mind that we need to reach for you? And we wouldn't do it in anger or apathy. We would do it saying, you have got to hear who Jesus is. As we sing, Jesus, we sing to you. We lift our hearts to you. And I pray that you would reshape our vision of you as the leader of the church. It's in your name we pray, amen.